0: Welcome to this session of the Economics of the Internet here at the Hudson Institute. My name is Harold Furch roth Our guest is Commissioner Joshua Wright, who is now a professor at George Mason University. Uh, before we get to our speaker, uh, just a couple of housekeeping things. Our next session will be on July 6th back here at Hudson Institute, wherein we will have uh, Professor, uh, actually, President. Now the president and CEO of the museum will be speaking about uh, online communications and the First Amendment. And uh, then on July 28th, we have uh, Randy Barnett, uh, professor at Georgetown Law School, who will be speaking about his most recent book on constitutional law. But today we're very pleased to have with us uh, Commissioner Joshua Wright. Uh, Commissioner Wright received his undergraduate degree from UC San Diego with honors. And five years later, he received not just his PhD in economics, but also a law degree from UCLA, which I think is uh, uh, shows uh, his efficiency at getting through things. And his career has been on a meteoric rise ever since then. Uh, he recently uh, completed uh, his um position on Federal Trade Commission, where he was a commissioner, uh, and if you wanted to know what was going on at the FTC, all you had to do was, was read his comments about and his uh, statements about uh, what was going on at the FTC. He recently rejoined the faculty at George Mason University. He is a uh, prolific writer, but also uh, a very provocative writer who writes and speaks about... Uh, very interesting topics, and today he's going to speak to us uh, about uh, the independence of agencies and uh, the, the role or lack thereof of economists in them. Professor Wright,
1: thank you, and,
0: and thanks for having me.
1: Um, it's a pleasure to be here, and this is is absolutely one of my 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 favorite topics: uh, the role of economics within independent agencies. I um, so I've mentioned, I stepped down from the Commission, goodness, uh, almost a year ago now, uh, but started my my career in antitrust as a, a 19-year-old intern in the Bureau of Economics there. Um, and so sort of got my my feet wet, so to speak, in the field by uh, doing economics work with, within an agency. Um, and so over time have given uh a lot of thought to what I think is sort of the primary challenge. Um, I'm going to say independent agencies. but My expertise really comes from the Federal Trade Commission. I follow what other agencies do. I, I sometimes opine on what other agencies do. Uh, but in terms of the, the inner workings and institutional structure, uh, most of my expertise comes from Uh, the FTC, but I think there are sort of lessons that can be um, drawn from that that apply sort of more broadly to other independent agencies doing economic regulation uh, in in particular. Uh, I thought maybe what I would start with is a little bit of, I don't know, maybe state of play is what we could call it on the role of economics and in independent agencies, sort of as I see it now, and and uh, uh, I think uh, you know, I, as I was sort of drafting up notes for, for for doing this talk over the last couple of days, um, the I could not uh, escape sort of categorizing my thoughts into the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, useful organizational principle for almost anything, uh, and so. Uh, I thought I'd sort of use that to separate out what I think are a couple of distinct problems facing independent agencies when it comes to integrating economics um, into their mission. Uh, but I, I think from a 30,000-foot level, it's also important to sort of to take a step back on the importance of these questions and how they differ for independent agencies versus executive agencies. So executive agencies, you've got the OIRA function, requiring cost-benefit analysis, some sort of external review. Um, And the position of independent agencies has always been, uh, we're independent. Leave us alone. We don't want a wire review. We don't need it. We do this on our own. Uh, When I had my confirmation hearing in 2012, occasionally there are bills that uh, every two years it's mandatory that somebody puts up a bill that says, hey, let's do a style review for independent agencies. And at the time, I think the conventional wisdom answer for every commissioner who had ever had a nomination, who had ever had a hearing, was, uh, no, thank you. Uh, On behalf of the FTC, uh, we would like to reject your invitation to be subject to OIRA review. And, by the way we've got 50 phd economists we've got a great staff we think very hard about cost benefit analysis we don't need it we don't want it thank you and that was my answer in the confirmation hearing i think if i were asked that question now i may may have a different answer for some uh, reasons we can talk about but i, I think that sort of distinction is important early on is for the independent agencies you don't have that external check so institutionally what sort of mechanisms do you have to make sure that economic analysis is that the economic analysis if it's being done is uh, channeling policy and enforcement decisions in the right direction. So sort of quality control. Um, and I view quality control sort of as a separate issue than uh, influence. Right? You can have very high-level economic analysis being done in an agency, uh, you know, and if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there, nobody hears it, nobody reads it, nobody cares. And the economics isn't having influence with the agency, and I sort of view those as different problems with different remedies, and sort of try to uh, use this sort of good, bad, and ugly sort of um, meme to kind of walk through that. So, so on the on the good side, I think uh, the agency that I, I came up in, uh, the Federal Trade Commission, on the competition side of the house. So the FTC and the Bureau of Economics has something like. 50 some odd PhDs or maybe it's 60 now um, and a staff of research uh, economists sort of below them uh, and it's structured in a particular way one is that the bureau director reports directly and only to the chairman of the agency um, that sounds like a reasonable thing to do if you care about the independence of the economic analysis being done by the agency it turns out it's a pretty unique structure, nobody else does it um, that seems like an awful mistake. Uh, and a lot of agencies, and even in the FTC and the DOJ, uh, economists were sort of buried in some subdivision of the Lawyers' Enforcement Bureau in a closet somewhere. Um, and maybe if someone knocked on the door, they got to come out and talk. Uh, I, I exaggerate somewhat, but in the FTC, this was the sort of the state of play until the director... The bureau director position was created in the 80s when an economist was named chair uh, of the agency. And at the same time, uh, Judge Ginsburg, uh, later of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and my colleague at George Mason, uh, was named AEG at the Department of Justice Antitrust Division. So this did the same thing. Named a chief economist, had them report directly to that agency head, um, and give independent recommendations on essentially everything the agency did. Every case that comes before me uh, as a commissioner, every recommendation, the Bureau of Economics uh, writes a recommendation. They do analysis and they say, "We, you know, we think you should sue. We think you should enter this to consent. We don't think you should, whatever they think." Uh, and that sort of comes up 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 the chain. On the competition side of the house, I think this has had a huge influence in uh, the way that the FTC sort of lump the DOJ in, in, in two, even though they're an executive agency, and the way that they do business. Uh, those agencies have been, in addition to doing, they've got great staff. I mean, the, the, I've said many times in testimony and other places, I think the collection of economists uh, at those agencies, but particularly the FTC where I'm most familiar, is probably, uh, in, in my view certainly, the best collection of economists in any government agency anywhere. Um, there's sort of no question about the quality of the analysis. Uh, and you can see that in the output from the agencies. So um, just a handful of examples. I mean, on top of the work that's done in merger review and whatnot, is, is just really high-quality, cutting-edge stuff. Um, and so the agency, because of that, has no problem recruiting very good economists out of grad school. Uh, top economists generally don't want to start their career inside a government agency now. It's difficult to recruit um, at times, but just not true as a general matter uh, in my experience at at the FTC, in part because people are given freedom to do academic work, but also because um, the work being done is fun and interesting. But if you look at the output, if you look at the work the agency economists do, if you look at... Uh, Some of the cutting-edge stuff for how to evaluate hospital mergers, we have a bunch of data, um, has come out of the agency. Uh, The agency guidelines themselves sort of are adopting cutting-edge economic stuff. It is often those agencies on the competition side of the house are leading getting more economics integrated into law, even when that's not in the agency's self-interest. So economists have been thinking about merger efficiency defenses since Oliver Williamson wrote a paper in 1968. Um, the courts didn't want to adopt it, but the agencies put it into their guidelines. The agencies think about it seriously. Um, and we're t- trying to persuade courts that efficiencies ought to be a part of the analysis. It's sort of an obvious conclusion for uh, economists. But it was against self-interest in some ways if the agency just cared about winning cases. Um, so that, that, to me, is sort of the good side of the story. You've got uh, great professional economist staff. They've got um, enough influence that it's a, uh, you can see it. You can detect it in the output of, of the agency. That's not to say that uh, there are no sort of imperfections on the competition side of the house. Um, uh, you know, there are lots of individual cases where I disagreed with the way that the commission came out, and sometimes with the way the economists came out. You know, economists, you know, like to disagree with one another on occasion on the magnitude of effects or the way this case or that case comes out. But systematically, I think the overall story on the competition side of the FTC is a really good one. I think it is essentially a model for how economics can and should be integrated um, into a law enforcement and policy mission at an independent agency. To the extent that there are problems there... They are not quality control problems. They're influence problems. They are um, influencing a staff of regulators and that may be reluctant to adopt some economic insight that makes it more difficult uh, to prosecute cases. Is a natural instinct and a natural tension that happens between lawyers and economists and agencies, and one that sometimes takes a long time to, to, to resolve. Um, in some cases, too slow for my tastes. But I think that there are institutional mechanisms within the agency to sort of try to address that. That's enough good. I should do some bad and ugly. Um, Bad, I'll stick with the same agency. And I promised I'd at least say a couple of provocative things. So um, bad, I think, on the consumer protection side of the House at the Federal Trade Commission, um, and other agencies, frankly, that are doing consumer protection work, um, you can lump the CFPB in there if 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 you'd like. Um, and again, there it's at both agencies. I think you know, if you're an agency with an unlimited budget, CFPB, you can you can hire good people, and they did. I mean, they've got they've got good economists, uh, and FTC has very good economists doing consumer protection work. Um, Again, I think the issue is less quality control there and more institutionally, how do you generate influence? And um, then I'll talk about the FTC where I'm most familiar. But there's a real challenge in getting economic insight integrated into the work of the agency. Antitrust, this was solved somewhat by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court stood up in the late 70s and said, thou shalt do economics, or you're committing antitrust malpractice. So you know, a violation requires a showing that economic welfare went down. Well, everybody starts to... You can't say as a professional antitrust lawyer I don't care about the economics and get taken seriously. You can say it and wink, um, but you can't say I don't care. Uh, not true on the consumer protection side of the house. And that really didn't matter in when most of what independent agencies did in the consumer protection space was fraud. So the FTC did mostly fraud cases in the 70s and 80s. Um, where you didn't have to worry a lot about trade-offs, you could line up a hundred economists, and a hundred out of a hundred would say, "So fraud's bad." Even even economists sort of get that. Um, fraud's bad. I don't need to run a regression. I don't. Not a complicated model to worry about. Fraud, fraud's bad. Yes, we should sue them and take their money back. Um, but in the modern FTC, or or CFBB or sort of whoever on the privacy landscape, what are the interesting cases? We still do fraud. It's a really important part of the mission. But what are the interesting cases? Privacy stuff. So privacy policies. Um, uh, various uh, aspects of sort of the, the big data ecosystem. Where a lot of what's going on in terms of the cutting edge economics is sophisticated stuff about understanding consumer preferences for, for, for privacy and different trade-offs. Um, most of these practice to understand the welfare effects, right? to understand whether consumers are ultimately better off or worse off, require a little bit more nuance. They're not fraud cases. The demand for economic in those cases, uh, to get them right, just should be higher. Um, And I think you've got a consumer protection culture that's come up around fraud. And so there's a natural, a little bit of a a natural tension. I don't think I'm sort of telling a story about bad motives on either side. It's sort of a natural institutional tension that's arisen that rejects, in some cases, the integration of economic tools to think about consumer protection issues. That just doesn't happen on the competition side of the house. In the United States or, 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 or sort of, Almost anywhere else. Um, but on the consumer protection side, it does. Some of that's the law. You don't have the Supreme Court standing up and saying, like they do in antitrust, uh, this is an economic welfare regime. So, you know, some of the push factors are different and some of the pull factors are different. Um, but I think of cases, uh, to give an example, I have a, a dissent in a case uh, involving Apple um, in app purchases. So, anybody's got an iPhone or an iPad or what have you, um, there are apps. Apps have the ability occasionally to do in-app purchases. Right? You open the app and you know, you're playing your skateboard game and skateboarding down the street and you can play that game for free um, all you want. You can also, within the game structure, buy a better skateboard for your little video game guy. And It will cost you real money. You hit a button and it will say, you know, buck ninety nine for your better skateboard. I've never skateboarded in my life. I don't know why I picked that example, um, but hopefully it's still working, right? But you can spend money in some games. You are you are familiar. I have I have a nine year old. I'm very familiar. It was, you know, Daddy, can I buy a skateboard? Um, and so the case was about the level of disclosures for the fact that in-app purchases could happen within the game. It was disclosed. It wasn't about whether they disclosed. It was about whether the disclosures were adequate. Um, And so the FTC's theory in the case was that it was an unfair business practice, not deceptive, but unfair. Fun fact about the FTC unfairness statute, it has in it a violation requires Costs that exceed benefits. It's a cost-benefit test. is written into the statute, so can't escape the economics to save your life if you're doing unfairness law enforcement. It's um, sort of cooked right into the statute. And the theory was by not um, by disclosing once, so uh, the, the the sort of flow of use in the case would be um, my nine-year-old boy brings me the iPad, says, "Dad, I want to bring the, buy this app." He presses by. It needs my password. I put my password in. I hand the app to him. And then I haven't had my morning coffee, and I go away. For 15 minutes, if you have iTunes or something like that, have ever downloaded a song, it's the same thing. For 15 minutes, you don't have to put your password in again. Most of you probably enjoy the fact that you don't always have to put your password in again. right? And that's that's why they do it. Right? So. <laughs> But the fact pattern and the theory is when I hand it to my kid and I walk away, well, for 15 minutes, he owns the world. He can buy whatever he wants. He's downloading albums. He's buying all the skateboards he wants, I guess. Um, and so the fact that there was not a, a, a second password required for the first in-app purchase was illegal. It was an unfair actor practice. Well, the statute says, if you are going to declare that act of practice illegal. We've got uh, we need reason to believe that the harm from the practice outweighs the benefits. We had some evidence of the harm. There were some consumer complaints. Apple had refunded a bunch of the money, but some people had this fact ha- pa- pattern happen. They were they, in-app purchases. And, and possibly, the lack of disclosure led to more in-app purchases than would have had otherwise. You know plausible, um, but you could kind of count that up, right? And we did, and it was, you know, there's a number associated with it, right? Now, the benefit of not having to add in the password the second time, right, So sort of the benefit of the way that Apple had designed its product, it's something also, right? And ideally, you would, you would weigh the two against each other. In fact, the statute says you better. Um, And the FTC's position was that the benefits of the product design were zero. Not a small positive number. It was that there were zero. Um, Virtually no analysis to suggest why. Um, And totally implausible to anyone who has ever in their life held a smartphone and had to put in their password more than once, just totally implausible. But we've got, uh, you know, I said it was a dissent. It was, you know, my, my colleague, uh, uh, Judge Ginsburg, I, was, I I wrote a couple of dissents when I was the FTC, and he would always remind me, uh, a dissent's a confession. You can't uh, convince any of your colleagues you're right. Um, so it was my confession. Uh, I was by myself in that case. I think I was on the right side. Now, I can't sit here and tell you that I know that the benefits exceeded the cost because we didn't do the work. Uh, We didn't do the work. Um, But it's our burden to do the work. And so the dissent was essentially, we didn't meet our burden, we lose. Uh, And the internal discussion at the agency was from the staff level up to each of the other three commissioners at the time. was We didn't do the work, but that shouldn't stop us from saying the benefits are zero. And condemning the practice as unlawful, and entering into a 20-year consent decree, over which we tell Apple how to do its disclosures—essentially, how to design the iPad, which they seem to be pretty good at. Um, so that is an example. I, you know, I sort of pick on the one case. There were a line of cases, sort of the, with Amazon and Google. And it turns out that each of them had adopted the same sort of window for past for, for uh, fifteen-minute windows, or ten, or twenty-minute windows for passwords, um, which, which may tell you it's a good idea, um, or at least that consumers think it a good idea, it's a good idea. But that is not the way that the FTC came out. The more important part, I think, and we sometimes see this in privacy cases, um, in addition to the app purchase cases, is there is not a culture of doing economics on the consumer protection side. And I think that's true with the CFPB. I think that's true of the, of, of the FTC. And so the institutional struggle, I think, is is tougher uh, and results in, in, in bad decision-making. Uh, I'll end with a sort of a two-minute spiel on I did good and bad, so I'll do ugly. Um, so I think a more extreme version of, and again, this is, Um, And it's it's difficult for me to speak about quality control of the economic inputs at other agencies because you have to get your hands on the work. And so I can't say much about um, the CFPB or the FCC, or or the SEC for that matter, when it comes to uh, the quality of the economic inputs. Occasionally you observe them in cases and you can sort of get your hands on them and figure out what they are. So um, the issue for me is much more sort of structural in nature. And so, for the the ugly, I mean, the the net neutrality decision came down not too long ago, um, and I think it highlights part of this this sort of de- de- debate. If you if you read um, Judge Williams' dissent, this is not an issue about um, quality control. It's binary. It is does the agency do economics or not? Is economics part of the agency's mission or not? There are economists in the agency. I do know. I do know they are able to attract very good chief economists. I know you know. And um, my sense is probably like the FTC and some other agencies, the staff is full of good economists. Um, but in terms of an influence story, it is obvious in the output of that agency that economics does not have certainly does not have the same influence as say the FTC. But I think that probably understates the problem. I mean, it appears to be um, the relevant margin is sort of zero economics or a tiny bit of economics. I mean, that's sort of the policy space that we're living in, and it turns out that it's probably closer to zero. And that, I think, is an institutional problem about influence and partially about structure. Um, The structure of the FTC is built for, the Bureau of Economics to have direct access to the chair and to agency decision makers. Um, it is not my sense that that is the structure adopted at other agencies. But even when you have the structure right, I think there are there are other issues. I think, for, for me, having been familiar with, with the influence of economics at the FTC over time, it's ebbed and flowed. When there was a PhD economist as a chair, Economics have more influence. I mean, part of that ebb and flow is natural. There have been, uh, I think now, one, two, three, five, I'm the fourth uh, economist commissioner. um, And people tend to pay a little bit more attention when the commissioner is demanding. You know, you can demand more be done. You can write dissents that force your colleagues to engage in the economics a little bit more. There There are levers to sort of pull for a commissioner. But in terms of influence, you know, part of that is structural and sort of how you organize the economists within your agency. Part of it is also, um, and I'll sort of close on, on, on this note to talk about what I think some of the solutions to this are. And, and, and mostly, I'll talk about the FTC and sort of a competition perspective. Um, when economics does not adequately influence, say, FTC policy. Um, and you're sort of not in the world of a quality of the economic in- inputs, but how well it's sort of integrated by commissioners and enforcement staff. Uh, if that's the problem, I think in part the remedy is one is organizational, and the other, I think, is is leverage within the agency. It is giving the economists more tools to get um, more cards to play when they're ignored within the agency, and I think there are ways to do that Structurally, one of the, um, my sort of preferred instruments for fixing this, and I, I testified not too long ago um, that I thought this was a particularly um, good idea for solving this problem, is uh, requiring independent agencies. It's sort of not all, way, all the way to the OIRA re- review fix, but requiring independent agencies. You usually already have a requirement to issue statements when they enter into consents or have votes or whatever have you to have a separate statement from the agency economists or from the commission or whoever, but a clear statement of the economic rationale for the decision made. Um, I think that that lever, the ability for the economists to say this consent uh, is a bad idea, if that's their view, or this consent's a good idea and here's how we got to that result, I think gives when it comes I mean most of these agencies, the FTC for example, I mean 95% of the business we do is consents, not in court. Um, but I think this works also for agencies that are doing rulemaking and doing um, and, and sort of doing more enforcement in terms of litigation. Uh, a separate statement that makes transparent the economic rationale and forces the agency decision makers to have that information transmitted to the world. They care about that. I mean, all of these commissioners, you know, care about the reputation of the agency. Um, they care about the things that they say publicly about the rationale for these cases. And I think internally, it gives the economists sort of a lever to pull about what ends up in these consents, whether consents are entered, um, are entered into. So that I think is one small institutional fix. At the FTC, it would require essentially no amendment to our rules. We could just start doing it um uh, we, we don't uh, but but we could and if if we're not willing to do it on our own, I think there are avenues through legislation or otherwise that can um, I think sort of a medium happy ground between sort of going all the way to a style review which which does have the cost of reducing agency independence and if people are worried about as you know, headlines abound about whether the FCC or the FTC or whomever are truly independent. If you really care about agency independence, then you know OIRA review has costs too, in terms of independence. So I sort of view uh, steps to empower the economists through giving internal leverage as sort of a happy medium that buys you a little bit of that um, without much threat to independence. The cost is you, you cause more internal tension between the economists and the lawyers. Well, I think that's good. I mean, that's how good policies happen is those fights happen and people have to engage with the, with, with with one another. So that's all of my good, bad, and ugly. Um, so I'll, I'll stop
0: there. Well, thank you very much. Uh, your uh, discussion was all good. And uh, I'll have to remember, Judge Kinberg, Judge Ginsburg's comments about dissents. Um, Having uh, spent much of my career dissenting, uh, uh, but I wonder whether he thinks the dissents uh, on his court or uh, at the Supreme Court are simply a a failure. uh, uh.
1: I I did tell him that I, I, I disagreed. I dissented from his view. And he told me well, you would. Um, so I'm not. I'm not sure we made any progress on that debate,
0: Commissioner, You. You were at uh, an independent agency that had a parallel executive agency. Now a lot of where the the work was done that was common, if you will, were on. Uh, uh, what I would characterize as adjudicatory proceedings. So it wasn't on rulemakings. It wasn't. On, I don't think it's so much on enforcement. Did you see any difference in how the FTC, as a, an independent agency, would approach those adjudicatory proceedings relative to, say, a uh, uh, an executive agency?
1: Largely, with the FTC and DOJ, I think the answer is no. I mean. Uh, with a couple of small but important exceptions. So I think uh, whether it's you know litigating monopolization cases or through merger review, I think the way that the FTC and DOJ conduct their business is essentially the same. I think if you were to transport FTC economists or lawyers into the DOJ, uh, they'd, they'd be able to do their job on the first day and not reco- uh, you know, not... Uh, they would recognize the process as familiar, um, if not fairly close to identical. There are some some differences that derive from the FTC's ability to use administrative litigation. Um, I think those differences are shrinking. Um, there's been some pending legislation and debate about uh, the Smarter Act, which would uh, harmonize preliminary injunction standards for the DOJ or FTC. There's some concern uh, that the FTC has access to a reduced burden to get a preliminary injunction in federal court uh, because of differences in the in the statutory language, uh, which in my view would be a bad thing. Right? You don't want uh, the standard, the, the law that applies to your merger to be different depending on the coin flip assignment between the FTC and DOJ. Um, that difference, I think, has shrunk over time. Sort of courts and agencies sort of fix that on their own, um, and so there are small hiccups like that. But they have less to do with agency process for evaluating a transaction or the way the, the agency goes about its decision making than it does sort of with uh, with with legal structure.
0: You discussed independence, and uh, I want to ask you a couple of questions, both for the FTC. I can tell you my experience at the FCC may be substantially different. First of all, it's just really how independent are the independent agencies from from the executive and within an agency, and this may be very different at the FTC, uh, but uh, my sense is at the FCC, if you ask the chief economist to write an opinion, uh, the chairman would instruct him exactly what's going to be that opinion, or else you're dealing with a former chief economist. Uh, the idea that you could have someone on staff uh, write a dissent, I think, is that maybe maybe you could do that at the FTC. I don't think you could at the FCC.
1: Right. So, so a couple of things. I mean, in terms of how independent uh the agency it's I certainly can't speak with any great insight into the the FCC I you know I read what people read and you know I watch the Colbert show like the next guy but I don't I don't, I don't you know it's hard to know uh whose telephones are ringing inside the agency and who's on the other side um, you know sort of other than than, than your own phone uh, I I will say my experience at the FTC um, has been, you know, I've never, not once during my term, had um, another branch of government exert influence over, even try. I mean, now that could be, I could say more about me. Maybe they thought I was not reachable, um, or I couldn't be persuaded. I'm, I'm,
0: I had the same experience.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm open to the idea that this is more about me than them, but, um, but it never happened. Wasn't
0: the chairman's office either.
1: Right, right. I was, uh, I was a, a, a minority commissioner, um, but my view is, even if that happened at the FTC, and truthfully, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical that it did even in. Um, majority commissioners or, or, or the chair's office. It just, um, I just I don't doubt that calls are made or communications are are sort of made in some way, but that they actually have influence. I'm 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 fairly skeptical. Um, and one thing I can sort of say with with uh, with great confidence is, even if any of that were to happen, um, the culture of the FTC is that. That sort of influence doesn't touch what the staff does. The staff's going to do this sort of cultural issue on the consumer protection side. I raised is precisely because they're relatively immune from outside influence, right? It's a it's a success story from the perspective of independence. In some ways, they're too damn independent, right? Um, you know, to to outside thought. And, and, and in my view, but the upside of that is I don't think anybody tells them what to do. Uh, I think staff does what they're going to do they make the recommendations they're going to make and um, and commissioners decide so if there is a, uh, a sensitivity to outside influence it's going to be in the commissioner's office um, but that is not something I observed uh, at the FTC I think different commissioners cared about politics more um, some more than others um, but in terms of you know outside pressure coming in and I don't think it's a big part of, it's probably not a zero part either, but I don't think it's a large part of of what the agency does. But I, I can fully understand why that would be different at other agencies. And part, part of it's structural, right? We have a, the FTC does all, all of the economy. And you know, the interests all over the place that cut in different directions. Um it's a uh, it's a little bit more difficult to exert sort of a uniform, you know, focused interest and, and influence with respect to the, the, the economists and 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 dissents. Um, look, I don't think a chief economist at the FTC or DOJ has ever publicly written. You know, that case the FTC brought that was really stupid. I, I, none of them have done that. They, they, too, would probably be a former chief economist if that happened. Um, but they sure have written recommendations saying, don't bring this case. They sure have gone to commissioners and said, you want to vote to block this merger, don't. Or you don't want to block it, you should. Or the enforcement staff are wrong. Or commissioner, you're wrong. I got lots of that, right? Um, and there's, I don't think any fear within the Bureau of Economics, and particularly from the, the the director. I think that sort of disagreement is part of the culture and accepted, and that that is a, a sort of perfectly uh, normal thing. I think the larger the danger to that culture, uh, if if you will, is. You know, in part, it is uh, it is tough in some ways to be a staff economist at one of these agencies. Fifty economists and you know a couple hundred lawyers doing competition cases, and some merger comes up, and the lawyers want to block the merger, and you get a staff memo from the Bureau of Competition that has 50 names on it signing it. It's every lawyer in that division who's touched it, and it's the bureau chief and everybody that you've ever met in the agency who's on your floor um, is recommending to block the merger there are not enough economists. I mean most cases have one economist assigned if they're a big case maybe two so you know when you're in a case you're the one economist and you know you want to throw you know a wet towel on the event um, and you have your you know you write your memo saying this is a bad idea I promise you you're you have knocks on your door. Um, and I don't mean that in a bad way or sort of, it, it, you know, staff are going to say, I disagree with you, defend your position. Maybe um, you've got to be willing, if you're that economist, you're by, you're by yourself, um, to fight the fight. You're going to go in and meet with five commissioners and there's going to be a room full of lawyers and there's going to be an economist. Maybe he'll bring his friend for moral support, but there's going to be two economists in the building. Um, and they're going to say, don't, don't block the deal, um, it's got to matter to you to do that. And that is, can be costly. I mean, the staff, inv- you know, inv- the, the, in terms of the lawyers, they invest significant time in these cases. Um, conduct cases could be a year, year and a half. They develop a case, they want to bring it, uh, and you're there to tell them no and that bringing it would make the world a worse place in economic terms. People get sensitive to that sort of thing. Um, and so I think from um, the staff perspective, and again, this is you know, sort of institutional and about incentives, not, not, not motives. It's uh, not a good guy, bad guy story as much as it's uh, uh, these are real institutional concerns. I saw one of the things as a commissioner that would upset me, uh, the economist in me anyway, is I would occasionally get memos from economists that would say, "Well, in terms of the economic analysis, this is not a good case. The harms exceed the benefits uh, from from bringing the case." Or you know, um, we, you know, the merger is going to lower prices, not increase prices. But the recommendation line in the mer- in, in the memo would say, "So we shouldn't sue them, but like en- entering a settlement is fine." Because that's that's a compromise, you know, and it is a compromise in the sense that it is between two endpoints. Um, but it's not right, and it's certainly not economics uh, to enter into a consent. We're alleging as an agency that the conduct's illegal. We're alleging that the conduct harms competition. I've got a memo that says it doesn't, but you should enter into the consent, and that's p- part of that's economist sort of not caring as much about the legal nuance of what a consent means and what it doesn't. But part of that, I, I think, is um, you know live to fight another day. And that, I think, is part of the natural... You're to have some of that. I don't think a rule that forced the economists to you know, not to economize on their political capital in the agency would be a good rule. I mean, the economists get to make strategic decisions too. Um, but I think that's just sort of part of the natural... I think that's part of the natural tension in an
0: agency when they're doing it right. In the, uh, both in the network neutrality decision that came down, the majority opinion, and and frankly, in just about every major case involving a regulatory agency over the past uh, 35 years, uh, there's uh, this repeated reference to Chevron deference and deference to the uh, technical expertise of the agency, including potentially on economic matters. Yeah. It strikes me there's sort of a logical inconsistency which goes as follows Um, on cost-benefit analysis, whether it's under the Regulatory Flexibility Act or sub or any of the various laws that Congress has passed to try to do uh, cost-benefit analysis. Uh, they're, uh, the agencies, you know, they, they have some boilerplate. They fill them out. And none of this is subject to any kind of judicial review. The, uh, and, and then the, the, the justices or <coughs> judges in courts sort of say, well, we're going to give Chevron deference. And obviously, the agency knows what it's doing, even though on, on economics, outside of the FTC. Uh, but in a lot of agencies, EPA comes top of mind. Uh, but there are a lot of others where there really is no economic analysis. Um, is there a solution? I mean, and let me just toss one possible one out, which is to to make some of these cost benefit analysis subject to judicial review, that that someone can actually go to court and sort of say, well, I don't see any documentation for this. <laughs>
1: right, and that, and that. Ha- I mean, and. Um... You know, Judge Ginsburg, as a has an opinion like this with the SEC, you know, business roundtable decision, um, and it happens more in the rulemaking context uh, than you know. For the FTC consents, we have no judicial review, and we don't do on the competition side of the house much much rulemaking, uh, if 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 any. Um, and so, I think judicial review is of cost benefit analyses is certainly a. a you know, a partial solution, I think, tailored for certain setups with with, with rulemaking, to be sure. Um, I, I wouldn't, by the way, let the FTC off too easy here. Um, so this question of sort of journalists versus experts is something I've, I've written about, um, co-authored uh, with uh, former bureau director uh, Mike Bay, who's at Indiana, and uh, a former advisor of mine, Angela Dively, who's an antitrust lawyer. Um, but part of the interesting question in antitrust is well, there's this sort of expertise hypothesis that relies Chevron and uh, deference that agencies get when they, they go to court and the premises that the agencies do do it better. Um, well, that has testable implications. And but, but what we've, I've tried to do in some academic work is go out and and, and test that. And the, the punchline is which I think people usually mis- misread. I mean, the punchline is that uh, courts outperform the agencies. Uh, generalist Article III judges outperform the agencies, uh, at least if you believe appeal rates, reversal rates, citations, um, sort of just about any um, quality metric you can try to get your hands on, all sort of point in the same direction, that the Article III generalist judges who are don't know anything about antitrust do better. Um, and that, I think, uh, the puzzle, I think, of that result is people will infer from that that it's a claim about the agency not having expertise. And it's not. The, the FTC in those decisions, um, you know, when the commission decides something, has all sorts of access to economic expertise. There, you can't throw a stone without hitting a PhD economist on the second floor of that building. Um, Some try, Uh, but there's not a lack of expertise. It's a question institutionally of how that expertise is integrated into decision-making. Same question in federal court. You have outside economic experts testify. They battle against each other. And you have a different institutional process for getting economic information into the decision maker's hands, very different process with sort of paid adversarial expertise and a, a sort of different uh, discovery process as well. You have Dalbert. You have sort of a, a whole different setup. Um, but when you run that horse race between institutions, the, the, the generalist judges win. And to me, um, and that's with that's sort of litigation decisions. And so I think that this issue happens. Um, I, I wrote a dissent in an FTC monopolization case. Um, I was outvoted uh, 3 to 1, an exclusive dealing case that the commission later is affirmed on appeal, essentially on a pure agency deference uh, decision, and a case that I think is um, had it been brought in federal district court to start, it would, would, would have lost. Rejects the view entirely that the agency needs to set forth any economic evidence, uh, which I think is sort of inconsistent with the general antitrust approach. So I think this is a real problem in the litigation context and the rulemaking context. Um, what to do about Chevron in that context is, is difficult. I mean, uh, judicial review of rulemaking, I think, is, is, is useful. Um, I thought you were going to say when you had a solution was to make some of the DC Circuit judges walk through some agencies, um, but uh, it'd be cruel and inhuman. <laughs> but and and and, and some, some of them have been in, in inside the agencies. But I, I think this um, sort of I, I maybe it's wishful thinking that it's an ongoing battle um, for the way the DC Circuit views deference or. Uh, you know, if you read between the tea leaves, of so Supreme Court cases and the Trans and D.C. Circuit, um, you, you might read them as going in opposite directions. Um, but the direction of that that debate, I, I really do think two, two buckets of solutions. And one is the judges are going to do it. And the second is, within agencies, creating mechanisms for greater power for, for the economists. Um, the judicial review bucket of solutions, whether it's rulemaking or appellate review of agency decisions, like in the the you know uh, McWayne, the monopolization case I referred to, um, my sense is becoming a less robust check on economically unsound decision making by independent agencies. Watching the FTC and the FCC. I'm pretty confident that it's a less robust check. Uh, I should be a little bit more careful about, about whether or not that's applying across the board because I know less about those areas. And you have cases like Business Roundtable at the SEC, and you've got successful um, application of that check on the FCC by the D.C. Circuit and other cases. Um, but my sense is that the trend is that judicial review is... Less of an effective constraint on economically unsound agency decision making than it used to be, um, which has in part led me to start trying to think a little bit more rigorously about sort of within institution changes that in some ways are easier to effectuate, uh, can be done by a chair uh, in many cases, can be done without legislation, um, could be done with also that change the incentive structure within the agency to give the economists more instruments to influence cases, and more instruments in particular to influence cases by getting commissioners and decision makers to care about uh, economic input. Um, now, it probably says something about my lack of creativity that most of the solutions I can think of are involve having the economists um, write separately, requiring the agency to have economists write separately to say, the benefits of the cost exceed the cost for this action, and here is why. Um, uh, That's born in part from the FTC experience. I'm sort of trying to think harder about how that generalizes or whether that generalizes. But I'm less and less hopeful about judicial review by the day.
0: I have monopolized the questions. Let me open it up to our audience for for questions. Uh, Do we have a microphone? Uh, If you could please identify yourself when uh, the question is asked. Uh, The gentleman right up here in the front row. Um, I'm Howard Busker, Communications Daily. I just wanted to to ask you whether, do you believe that some of the areas that the FCC has engaged itself in recently, such as privacy and, you know, the whole, all the net neutrality rules that are kind of coming forward now, the stuff that's come out of the rules, whether that means that that would would speak to the need for more economists? But then secondly, I, I wanted to ask In an institution where, if you think that most of the decisions made are are being are political, isn't the chairman just going to find economists who agree with him and her her anyway? And so, what good would additional economic analysis do? So that's sort of that's what I've been thinking. Those two things as I'm sitting here. Sure.
1: Um, So, on the first question, uh, in part. If you've got a framework that doesn't require economics, adding economists doesn't matter. And I think the FCC privacy, at least a proposed privacy framework, has very little, if anything, to do with economics. Um, And so you you can fill the room with economists, and I don't think it would matter. Um, I I think that's a bad thing, to be clear. I think that's a bad thing, not a good thing. Um, The question, I think, really is about A a couple of things. If you've got a chair that doesn't care about economics, you could have a chair at the FTC. We don't. Our chairwoman cares, I think, a great deal about economics um, and has, and particularly on the consumer protection side. I mean, they hired a bureau director who is a consumer protection economist, not a competition person, for the first time, and I think it's a a wonderful idea. Um, So you could have a chair or an AAG in the FTC or DOJ that doesn't care much about economics. And because of the institutional structure and because of the law, economics would still matter. Um, I think the FCC works a little bit differently uh, than that. But you know, uh, the FCC, at the FCC, uh, you could hire a chief economist who agreed with your views. Um, but you know, it's not like you can walk around firing and hiring staff all you want. At least you know. That's, uh, that's not been my experience at agencies. Um, and I think the, the staff you have is what you have. Um, so I think the more interesting question is left whether the chair controls the economists. The chair doesn't need to pick economists he or she agrees with. The chair can just ignore them. right? And, and I think the real challenge, whatever the agency, is fixing that. It's creating an incentive structure where uh, the input of economists, can't be ignored, or if it is ignored, there are mechanisms to make that costly. I think that's a sort of far more fruitful avenue than sort of personality politics with chairs and, and, and economists that vary from 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 time to time. But part of that's the law, right? So part of that is if you adopt a rule that has nothing to do with economics to detect sort of privacy-based violations. Um, law doesn't call for much involvement of the economist. The economist can recommend not to bring this action or that action, um, but I think the influence will be necessarily muted if that's the case. That, to me, I mean, I think the most of my comments about the FTC's consumer protection side, um, I think, are criticisms one could make equally of um, what I've seen of the sort of consumer protection privacy work in particular of the FCC, I think there are there's a culture of not caring about the economics that comes from a underlying law enforcement culture, and I'm you know not saying that I don't understand where that comes from, but uh, from an economist, I think um, some of that decision making is is puzzling.
0: Uh, question in the back room.
2: Uh, James Tsang, retired. lay consumers of uh, analysis, economic, or engineering usually like numbers. Uh, professional consumers usually like ranges, uh, uncertainties, understanding where the analysis comes from. The non-professional commissioners at FTC, do they just take numbers, or do they actually look for uh, the ranges that go into the estimates? At the FTC? Um
1: I certainly like both. I you know, I used to run regressions for a living. So that's, you know, I'm, I'm probably idiosyncratic in my, in my preferences. But look, I, I mean, I think that the commissioners, part of the change in culture that happens at the staff level, one of the reasons is important um, is that the agency decision making is not all top down. If you have a culture of taking the economic evidence seriously at the staff level, Commissioners have to pick up their game to some extent. If the language spoken in the agency is that we care about confidence intervals and in our estimates, and um, you know we care about robustness checks and and things of that nature, then you know I think that there's a natural inclination for that culture to, to sort of ebb up to commissioners, whether they come from a professional background or or, or not. Uh, and I think that that happens at the FTC. So with with this. The things that the economists do in the competition cases, you know, we'll get estimates, ranges, simulations, calibrate, we'll get all sorts of stuff. And I think the commissioners understand it to varying degrees, but I think that they care about more than the number. I mean, I think that the on the competition side of the house, uh, they do care about getting it right. I think that's certainly the case. I think on the margin. It becomes the the bigger challenge for the FTC on the competition side. Is not so much whether it's you know sort of do they are they going to care about economics or not, but uh, when caring about economics is inconvenient to the law enforcement mission, what do you do? You know, so sort of what do you do when nobody's looking? Um, And if it's always in favor of law enforcement, I think it says something not too great about how you value economics within the agency you care about sophisticated economics tools only when you're prosecuting cases, right? what you care about is prosecuting cases. And the economics are a tool to do that, I think. Um, and I think, in general, the FTC is pretty good about that on the competition side, at the, at the commissioner level, sort of all the way down. Um, couple quibbles here and there for me, sort of notwithstanding.
2: Let's take one more question here, this gentleman. Good afternoon. My name is Gary Becker. I used to be Senior Economist in the Policy Office of Homeland Security, and I'm currently Chief Economist at Catalyst Partners. When I was reading the title of your presentation, Suppressed Role of Economics, I was thinking a lot about my experiences over the past years. And some of the things I was thinking about as as you were speaking was the fact that Economists need the support of their bosses. And economists can talk about the great regression analyses that they've done and what the numbers show, but if their, econ- if their bosses don't understand economics, or I'm glad to hear you're both an economist and a lawyer, but if you were just maybe a lawyer, you may not care a whole lot as compared to your being an economist and a lawyer. So what I'm arguing is that the bosses need to support the, the people below them, or else no economist that I know of is going to get up in front of you know, peers and state his viewpoint if he doesn't have anyone backing him. And that's the thing that I've found over the years, that I, when I go, when I work with my fellow economists, I better be up there supporting them and making the case with them if economics is going to play any kind of role. Otherwise as you say, the suppressed role, is we're never going to get a, a, um, a, a seat at the front of the table where, where we really can uh, talk about the, the kind of work that we're doing. And actually, when I was listening to this fellow here uh, earlier, and he was talking about economists going the way one way versus the other, you know, we have to be objective. In other words, whatever the numbers say, they say. And if we can't be objective, we shouldn't be doing the work that we're doing. So we have to have a boss that supports us. We have to be objective in our work. And honestly, a third thing that I was thinking about as, as I was hearing you talk is that I worked in a lot of agencies like OSHA, MSHA, USDA, and whatever. And a lot of the people in those agencies, I'm sorry I'm talking too much maybe, You know, they are proponents of, like, worker health and safety. They're proponents of food safety. They're proponents of the environment. And we as economists, when we kind of look at things in balance and we're arguing with some people, many of who are proponents of a particular thing, we're kind of fighting an uphill battle. And it's like, how do we get this balanced approach where everyone in the agency can be objective? Sure. So let me –
1: thank you. Let me – Fire off a couple of, I don't know if they're responses, but they're things I'm thinking while I listen to you talk. Um, so a, a couple of things. One is absolutely right, it takes, um, it has to be a priority of the agency to care about the economics and the economic effects for it to matter, or it's not worth the economist. Uh, time or capital, reputation, whatever it is, to sort of stand up and and sort of put their neck out there or even invest in doing the work right? if if nobody's going to care about uh, the outcome. I think the question that I'm interested in is in part how to the same question, which is uh, how to create an environment where we satisfy those conditions. And there are a lot of ways, I think, to get there um, some are outside of our control as economists. I mean, I mean, the 700-pound the gorilla uh, in terms of the explanation for the rise of economics and, and antitrust, which I think is maybe the area of law where that integration's been most successful, and by maybe I mean definitely, um, it was the Supreme Court. The law changed, and it pulled lawyers, Kicking and screaming and objecting at the time. They won't admit it now, but kicking and screaming and objecting at the time into an era where antitrust became sort of an economics required discipline. And you don't have that uh, in the underlying body of law for some of the agencies that you mentioned. You don't have that in consumer protection. You don't have that in some of the work that the FCC does. And so it works great for antitrust, but unless you get um, that sort of revolution that happened in the Supreme Court in antitrust in the 70s to the mid-80s, I, I don't think that there's been anything like it. So we, we probably, as economists, can't hold our breath and wait for that. Um, and so I think most of the change has really got to happen through um, institutional change within agencies. I think that that's really the only way to do it. Sometimes the agency's mission, um, you compare the FTC's mission to, say, some of the other agencies uh, that you rattled off. Economic welfare is built into our consumer protection statute. You have avenues as the economist and as the commissioner to say, well, an element of the legal violation is that the costs exceed the benefits. We probably need some economics to do that. Um, Even you know, there are avenues to get the agency from the staff level up to care about the economics, um, but that differs across, across agencies. It, to me, um, and this is you know probably a sort of long but full-throated agreement with the idea that you need some mechanism within the agency to have uh, support for the economist who's going to give the view, do the work. Um, And that's got to come, I think, not only from, I mean, people care a lot about the commissioners. I like that. It worked great for me when I was a commissioner. I could stomp my foot and stuff would happen. That's nice. Hasn't happened a day since I left. Um, But I think some of it's from commissioners. But there are other ways to, to, to sort of go about that, I think. Uh, for me, giving the economist tools um, to be able, if you required the economist you required the economist to write down the analysis and what it is, commissioners care tomorrow. They care tomorrow. That document's public. It's part of the record. Um, it's a quick, dirty, cheap way to make the agency care about the economic analysis. But I, you know, I, I think it would also be uh, effective, at least in some agencies. I certainly don't, don't sort of speak about the institutional structure of all of, all of them. Uh, but for example, in the FTC's consumer protection mission, I think it would change the game immediately. Well, thank you very much. Please join me in thanking
2: Commissioner Joshua.